Well, good morning. You all are much closer to me than I'm used to seeing, so I'm, I get a little nervous. This is a little too much proximity for me. Give me a little grace this morning. My name is Matt. Uh, my wife is Christy. She's around here somewhere. She is a UVA alum, so she's a very happy woman this morning. Uh, we lead the small group that meets in Random Hills right around the corner here, and I serve as one of the elders, and it is my delight to be with you uh, this morning. I want to start this morning with an anecdote or a story. 1948, think with me, there's an article published in the Journal of Social Psychology. I know you all subscribe to this, so you're probably already familiar with this. Some researchers at Harvard uh, did a study of the student body, and they were looking for the effect that names had on people's success. And what they found was really interesting. They found that among students at Harvard during that time frame, if you had what was considered a more common name, you were generally more successful academically, you were more successful uh, socially, you, were, you had better health, you had less psychological struggles, all these things. It was a monumental study. Uh, and so if your name was John or Robert or something like that, you're likely to be okay. But if your name was Benito or Zinka, and these are actual names in the study, you are more likely to have a problem psychologically, socially, all these things. Uh, so over the years, this study has been reproduced many times, and this effect shows up in lots of different places. Uh, it turns out our names have an effect on our marital status. They have an effect on the occupations we choose. They have an effect on our social status. They have an effect on lots of things. Now, there's a lot of debate as to why that might be the case. There's a lot of stuff in the literature, it's this reason, no, it's that reason. But nobody doubts that this effect is very real. In fact, about 20 years ago, they did a study with school children. And it turns out that the children in schools who have more unusual names tend to struggle more with discipline issues, and they tend to do lower on standardized scores. So why am I telling you this? Because our names tell stories in ways that we don't even realize. So I have two daughters. In fact, one of them is right here. I have two daughters, Allie and Lexi. Oh, the other one's right there. She switched places on me. Uh, and I like to think that I'm relatively influential in their life, although if you spend an afternoon in my house, you may not see that to be the case because they just do whatever they want half the time. But whatever, that's okay. But sometimes I'm really humbled by the fact that sometimes it strikes me that the most consequential thing I have ever done for them as their father happened before they were even born. I chose their name. It turns out their name has a huge impact on their life in ways that I would not have ever even conceived of when I was thinking about that. So all you people that are expecting babies this year, what are we, uh, what's the count, like eight, nine, 10, something like that? Choose carefully, right? Yeah, there's a lot at stake here, even things that we didn't even realize. Our names tell stories, even in ways that we don't realize. This is also true of the Bible. In fact, names in the Bible work a little bit different. They carry much more significance, if you can believe that. Your name told a story of who you were. It's not just something you put on a form or use for your social security or you put on a name tag if you go to a party, nothing like that. Your name told your story. And in fact, it wasn't uncommon for, for you to have your name changed because this new name better represented your story. A couple examples. Think of a man that we meet in Genesis. His name was Abram, and that name means exalted father. But a couple chapters later, his name changes to Abraham, father of many nations. Because his story changes, his name changes. Abraham had a grandson. His name was Jacob. And the Bible tells us that Jacob came out of the womb holding his twin brother's heel. So the name Jacob means heel grasper, or he grasps the heel. That was also a way that, uh, that that terminology in ancient Hebrew means deceiver or trickster. 
And if you're familiar with Genesis, you know that's Jacob's story. He is always up to something. He is a trickster and a deceiver. But later on, he has an encounter with God, and they actually wrestle. And uh, he, he set, issues this challenge to God, please don't let me go until you bless me. And God gives him a new name. He gives him the name Israel, which means he struggles with God. Probably my favorite example of a name in the Bible is from the book of Ruth. You guys might know this one. In the book of Ruth, we meet a widow whose name is Naomi. She has two sons, but those sons die young. And so the story is what happens with the widows of those two sons. And we're told that the names of the sons are weakly and sickly. Can you imagine, like a baby comes out, you're like, oh, cute little weakly. Like, that probably wasn't the name they put in the baby books, you know? No. But because that was the story of those men, that was the name that they carried. So names carry great significance. Well, today, we're going to learn a story about the name God wants us to use as his people. He's going to share that name with our guy Moses. We're going to learn what it meant to Moses, what it meant to the Israelite people, and we're going to look at what it means for us today. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. So as you start turning there, let me catch up a little bit. And I'm actually going to sneak over here and get my water. Uh, so last week, you remember, our guy Moses is walking around in the desert taking care of his sheep. He sees a bush that is burning. It's on fire. But it is not being consumed. And so being a curious sort, Moses goes to check it out. And when he gets there, the bush starts talking. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be freaked out in that moment. And the bush says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. I got a job for you. And Moses says, well, who am I? Why would you choose me? And God says, that's, that's cute. Good one. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It matters who I am. So this week, we're going to look at a different question because Moses asked him, who are you? Not who am I, but who are you? All right, so before we do that, as we're looking at the passage, oh, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand because our ushers will be happy to give you one. Okay, Brian's on the lookout for it. He'll take care of that. All right, so before we look at the passage, let me share today's big idea. Today's big idea, he does what he does because he is who he is. And I'll tell you more as we go along what we mean by that. He does what he does because he is who he is. Let's go into the passage here. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22. Let's start in verse 13. So Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So I don't know about you, but if I walk up to you at a party and I say, I'm Matt, what's your name? And your response to me is, I am who I am. I'm going to think that's a little weird. Yeah. That's not a name that I hear from very many people. I'm, I'm expecting you to say like Larry or Susan or something like that. But instead we get back, I am who I am. So it turns out this is actually a very, very profound thing to say. Because again, God is not just answering the question, who am I? He's answering the question, what is my story? What do I want you to know me by? And so he uses this phrase, I am who I am, and he's playing around with Hebrew grammar. Quick Hebrew lesson, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means. I took one Hebrew class. It was 20 years ago, but I do know enough to be dangerous, and I know this much. The Hebrew verb to be is very, very different than the way that we use it in English. 
So if I want to say I am something, I have a few different ways I can do that. For example, I am here in the cafeteria at Lanier Middle School right now with my friends at Harvest Fairfax. When I want to say that I did something in the past, I say this morning, I was at my house drinking coffee, trying to get my family to wake up and be ready for church. When I want to talk about the future, I'll say this afternoon, I will be back at my house taking a nap. So, so I've got different ways to say what I'm doing in the past, in the present, in the future. Hebrew is a little bit different because it doesn't give us that flexibility. You can say all of those things at the same time. So in five words, I am what I am, God is saying, I always have been, I am, I always will be. In fact, some of you may have a note in your Bible that, that translates this, I will be what I will be. You can say the same thing with different words. We can't do that in English, but, they, but God can do that in Hebrew. Are you clicking with me here? So what he's doing here, he's telling us two things. One is he's telling us about his nature, but then he's also telling us about his character. So in his nature, when he's saying, I always have been, I am, I always will be, he's telling us that he is transcendent, that he is beyond any constraint we can put on him. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. He's not bound by the laws of physics. He's not bound by any naming convention. He's not bound by our imagination. He always has been. He is, and he always will be. He is transcendent. This is one of the things that he wants his people to know about him. But there's a second level. There's actually millions of levels. But there's a second level that we care about for our purposes this morning is that he is. From a character point of view, he is. Meaning whatever attribute we can assign to God or character quality that we can assign to God, he is that thing. He is the perfect embodiment of that thing. He is the full expression of that thing. So in Psalm 19, for example, verse 68 says, you do good and you are good. God is good. You do good and you are good. Those things flow together. God doesn't hold those things differently. He didn't wake up this morning and choose to be good. He is good. You see that? Uh, 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Some of you probably know this verse. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone that loves is born of God. He who does not love does not know God, because God is love. He's the perfect embodiment of love. He's the full expression of love. We know what love is when we look at him. You think about God's mercy. God is not merciful by choice. It is in, in his very nature to be merciful. Lamentations 3.23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God doesn't choose to be merciful. He is merciful. Whatever quality we want to talk about in terms of the character of God, he is that thing. Everybody see that? This is a big deal, so I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. He is that thing. Now, you and I, of course, are only sometimes a thing. You know, for example, uh, when I met my wife, Christy, many, many, many years ago at this point, I think one of, I think this is fair, you can correct me later if I'm wrong here, but I think one of the things that she likes me is I'm a relatively fun guy. I have a decent sense of humor. You know, I'm a pretty good date. You know, we go to parties and I'm pretty good. Except that I'm, I'm only sometimes that thing. I'm not always that thing. I sometimes get a little grumpy, believe it or not. 
I sometimes don't want to be around some people. I want to sit in my nice leather recliner and maybe read a book or listen to a record or something like that. You know, I like to think that I'm a pretty loving father to my children. Again, they can correct the record if this is wrong. But here's the deal. I'm only sometimes a loving father. Sometimes I'm an angry father. You know, I like to think that I'm a faithful employee, that if my boss gives me a task, I can execute that thing, do a pretty good job. The problem is I'm only sometimes a faithful. Now, I like to think my track record is pretty good, again, but I'm only sometimes a faithful employee. So I am what I am sometimes. God is who he is always. He is. So the story that he wants people to hear in his name is that he is. Everything that they are looking for in a God to follow and put their trust in and acknowledge and worship, he is that thing. Now the second thing that he starts to talk to Moses about, let's, let's look at it in the word here. Picking up in verse 15, and I can't see, so let me pick this up here. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So you notice here, when God sort of turns a little bit and he tells Moses the name that he wants to use, he says, he uses this term, the Lord. So in, uh, again, another Hebrew lesson here, the Lord there, and you probably noticed in your Bible, that's in all capital letters. That's the word Yahweh. And this word in the, the course of Jewish history becomes so important to the Israelite people that they generally don't use it. So in uh, ancient Hebrew pra- uh, transcripts, you don't actually see the word Yahweh. Instead, they use the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. But then sometimes they actually use the word Adonai to mean Lord or Master, and they're not referring back to Yahweh. So we have an issue when we're trying to to learn this in English. And so our translators took that and they say, the Lord in all caps. So when you see that in your Bible, it is using the divine name. So God's telling us, this is the name I want you to call me. And he uses the word Yahweh. And you'll notice another thing as you're reading through the story of Scripture. So if you were to start Genesis 1 and start flipping through here, most of the time up until this point, when the character of God is referred to, it uses the word God. So in Hebrew, that word is El or Elohim. From this point forward, this word, Yahweh, the Lord, becomes the dominant reference. It's used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. Now, is Yahweh God? Yes, all of those things. God is a little different than you and I because he walks around with a couple different names. But the name he wants his people to call him is Yahweh. He is. And so, what he's telling them here is, I'm not just a God, El. And I'm not even just the God. I'm your God. I have a name. It means something. This is what I want you to call me. And notice how he ties it to the promises that he's made to uh, the, the Jewish people. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of your fathers. All of those promises that I made to them, I'm here to fulfill them. It's time to go. Remember how I told Abraham, I'm going to make you guys a great people? Now's the time. I'm here. I am your God. You are my people. So he's not just a God. He is our God. 
This is the attitude that the Jewish people start to carry around. And this is, this is a seminal moment. It changes their complete understanding of what they're called to do. Because remember, they've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They see that the Egyptians have a God. They see that the Hittites and the Parasites and all of these people, they have a God. They call these people by their names. They have practices. But as far as they know, they don't have one. Because the God of Abraham, well, Abraham lived a long time ago. Isaac lived a long time ago. Jacob lived a long time ago. Where's God now? You know, the, the Egyptians have a God that they pray to. They have a name that they call him. Who are we? When is our God going to show up? And this is the moment. It is a turning point in their understanding of who they are and who God is. You with me? Okay. This is really evidence. Deuteronomy 6.4, Jeff has mentioned this a couple times in the last uh, couple weeks. The Shema. This is the prayer that even today Jewish people pray on a daily basis. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh. He's our God. Yahweh is one. So this becomes an important part of our identity that they have a God that they can call by name. So he's not just a God, he's our God. And it's the same for you and I today. We don't just have a God, this amorphous force that sort of floats around and sometimes he makes it rain and sometimes he gives you a good job and sometimes he moves traffic out of the way so you can get to your doctor appointment on time or you know gives you UVA tickets for the final four or something like that. He's not just this mysterious force. He has a name. He wants you to know who he is. He has a story that he wants you to know and understand about him. And guess what? He wants you to be a part of that story. And that gets us to our third point. Actually, before we get to our third point, I want to stop and play one of my favorite games because I've told you guys before, my calling in life is really to be a game show host. So we got to play a quick game this morning. And the game we want to play is Where's Jesus? When we're looking at an Old Testament passage, we want to make sure we have our eyes open for where the person of Jesus shows up. So there's a couple things. New Testament writers loved this passage. They loved this story. They love the name of God. There are two places in particular. There's more than this, but two places in particular for our purposes I want us to see. Hebrews 13.8, talking about the person of Jesus Christ, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that sound like? It sounds a lot like I am what I am, doesn't it? I have been, I am, I always will be. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the writer here is giving an attribute to the person of Jesus that can only be true of Yahweh God. You see that? Next one we look at is the book of John. In fact, John was a huge, huge fan of this story. So he wrote a gospel, the gospel of God, and it is littered with references to this story. In fact, the whole book is built around these statements that Jesus makes that start with, I am. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Littered all the way through it there. It is very intentional. It's not an accident that he did this. And the, the most dramatic example comes from John chapter 8. Jesus is having an argument with the religious officials, and they're trying to say to him, yeah, you're pretty cool, Jesus, but we are followers of Abraham. And surely you don't think you're better than Abraham, do you? And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. He's taking on the divine name. He's taking on the name of God. Unless there be any doubt what he means by that, in the next verse we see that everyone picks up rocks because they're ready to stone him 
understanding him to have, committing, to have committed blasphemy. They know exactly what he's saying. So the writer there, John, Jesus in, in his uh, uh, account there, but also the writer, John, is putting the person of Jesus into this story. So when, when God says to Abraham, I am who I am, John wants you to be thinking Jesus belongs right there. You see that? So you're talking with your friends, a neighbor or coworker or something like that, and they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, John chapter 8. There you go. If Jesus never claimed to be God, why is he walking around using his name? So when we see the person of Jesus, we see Yahweh God. We see he is. We see he is our God. We see the fullness of who God is. All right, so verse 17 here. God keeps going, talking to Moses. And he says, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's very hard to say. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And notice here, this is just parenthetical. Notice it's the, the uppercase one. You see that in your Bible? So already God is, is using the word Yahweh as the name he wants to be known by. This is what he wants to go, wants Moses to go tell the people that Yahweh is, is doing this. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So Moses asks, who are you, God? God tells him his name. He tells him a story. And what is the first thing God wants Moses to know about his character? He wants him to know that he is a deliverer. It, the details of this we're going to cover as we go through Exodus, so I don't want to belabor this too much here. But you know, God says, hey, you're going to go back. You tell the Israelites how things are going to go. Just FYI, Pharaoh's not going to be a big fan of this, but I'm going to take care of Pharaoh. And then when you guys leave, you're going to make a lot of treasure. It's going to be awesome. But all of this flows from who he is. So the first thing he wants his people to know is that he is a deliverer. In fact, it's still true of us today. In fact, uh, Psalm 68 tells us, our God is a God of salvation. And to our God belong deliverances from death. And remember, he is who he is, or he does what he does because he is who he is. He delivers because he's a deliverer. He rescues because he's a rescuer. Notice that the text here does not say, you know what, you Israelites, you've been having a really bad time, but you know, you're working hard on those bricks. I feel like you've paid your dues, so now I'm going to step in. You guys are pretty awesome, so I'm going to deliver you. He doesn't say anything about that. He delivers because he's a deliverer. It reminds me of a story in Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel is uh, exiled to the city of Babylon. He's praying over the city of Jerusalem, a city that he has never been to and probably never will go to. 
And as he, he's praying that God's people will be able to return to their capital where the temple is, where their historic home is, he says, Lord, hear our prayer. Listen to our plea, not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. In other words, God, deliver us not because we're awesome, but because you are awesome. And it is in your character to deliver. It's in your character to be merciful. It's in your character to be gracious and kind. And I, I think about this, how many of us, when we pray, or when we're a small group and we're sharing prayer requests, how many of us use sort of deserve language, right? Yeah, you know, I don't know why I'm struggling with this thing. I don't deserve this. God, can you help me with this? That's not the language that God talks about these things in. The language that God talks about these things with, invite me to show how great I am. Invite me to show what my character is. So when our prayers turn from, God, I deserve such and such, or because I've done this, could you do this, as if we can negotiate with God or bargain? I mean, God will listen because he's very gracious, but the prayer that God loves is, God, you are great. Would you show how great you are by doing this? Would you show how kind you are by doing this? Would you show how merciful you are by doing this, all of these things that tell us the character of God. He loves to show off his character to us. But remember, he does what he does because he is who he is. So I want to land the plane uh, this morning. Uh, and actually, in Psalm chapter 9, verse 10, I think this will be on the screen. This is David writing. He says, those who know your name put their trust in you. Those who know your name put their trust in you. And for a lot of us, I think, this, this might be the moment that we're in. And so I'm going to invite us just to sort of meditate on that this morning, keeping in mind that he does what he does because he is who he is. Those who know his name, who know his story, who know his character qualities, his attributes, those who understand who he is, put their trust in him. So I don't know what you need to trust God for this morning. It could be a tough situation at your job. It could be a tough situation with your roommates or maybe a tough relationship that you're dealing with. For some of us this morning, it could be just the person of God. Maybe I'm struggling with who God is. Maybe I think of God as somebody who wants to punish me or, or keep me on the sidelines or, or God is hiding from me. But God's name tells us that's not who he is. He's not hiding from us. He's not capricious. He's not random. He's not any of those things. He is loving. He is gentle. He is kind. He wants to deliver. He wants to rescue. He wants to show how great he is. Those who know his name put their trust in him. So I hope this morning that this is a moment where we, individually certainly, but we as a church family, claim the name of God that he is who he is, that we trust him, that we can trust him for work and family and relationships and all those things, that we can trust him for Easter, that he's going to do a great work in this church, that we can trust him for this summer. You know, we're, we're on this uh, adventure of, of looking into changing our name, uh, that we can trust him for that process, that we can trust him for that coworker who really gets on our nerves, or all of this, that because we know his name, we can put his trust in him. 
I don't know what that is for you this morning, but I'm going to invite you to pray in just a moment, and I invite you to say, hey, God, because you are, I know that I can trust you for such and such. We'll give you some space to do that. Those who know his name put their trust in him. He does what he does because he is who he is. So we want to sit in that this morning. We want to meditate on that this morning. We want to claim that this morning. We want to pray that this morning so that God shows us his greatness and glory and power. I'm going to pray. The band will come back up. Let's pray together here. Lord, I want to give my friends here just a moment to consider this, that you are who you are. That whatever it is that makes you who you are, you are fully that thing. And God, I think some of us this morning need to know that you are good, that you do good, that you have our best interest in mind. And so even if we are facing a situation that is hard, that is challenging, that feels like we're up against it, that you are good and we can put our trust in you. God, I I strongly suspect this morning that somebody needs to know that you are loving And God, you don't love sometimes, you love all the time. And you have held nothing back from us, not even your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I suspect in a room with this many people, there's somebody that doesn't feel loved this morning. And God, I would want them to feel loved by you, by this church family, that you are love. God, I suspect this morning that somebody feels like there may be, that their head is on the guillotine, that they are about to be punished. Maybe for something specific, but maybe for something they don't even understand. But God, your word and your character tells us that you are merciful. And you are not that by accident. You are not that by choice. That is who you are. And so God, as we lean into your name that you are, and we see that you do what you do consistent with who you are, Lord, invite us to put our trust in you that whether it's a situation or just understanding you better or whatever it is, that you are worthy of our trust. And Lord, as we do that, we ask you to do great things. Show us your glory and power, your mercy and your love. All of these things, Lord, we would see who you are and celebrate and give you praise because you are worthy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.